Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today's guest is Kyle Houston, and he is the author of Patchwork Junkie, a story of his life of addiction and redemption, all the way from being arrested for cooking methamphetamine to being in prison and facing a 30-year prison sentence eventually getting out in 10, being in isolation, and in a way, finding himself and finding meaning and purpose and value on the outside. It was great talking to Kyle. You could tell, or at least I could tell, he was just so passionate about giving back to the world through his writing and his story. So it was great to have him on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with him. Also, before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes and join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. It'd be great to see you there online as well. And I'm looking for people who are willing to share their story of hope. You can go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash hope and record two minutes of audio of your story of hope, what recovery has been like for you and how you're healing or what works for you. It can also be a poem or a quote or something that's meaningful to you to be able to share your voice on the podcast as well. I'm putting those together and I really appreciate it. If that's a fit for you, you would do that. Just go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash hope. All right, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Kyle Houston, author of Patchwork Junkie. And Kyle, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, no problem. First of all, I, I just want to thank you. This is... Um... It's always great when people do their best to give a platform for conversations like this. So I really appreciate it. Glad to connect with you and your audience. 
Just really quickly, first and foremost, I am a husband and a father and proud of both of those things. I'm also a sales executive and a, a coach and a speaker, as well as an author, hence Batchwork Junkie. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And we were just talking earlier about being dads and and fatherhood and the beauty that comes with that. So I'm excited to hear about your story. And why don't we just start at the beginning? How, how did this all start? And then we'll get to how you ended up writing the book. But tell me a little bit about the beginning. Sure. I'm assuming you don't know want to know that I was born in the 70s or any of that stuff. So we'll just start with the addiction. We'll just lead right into it if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what ended up happening is I was a young entrepreneur in Missouri, 24, 25 years old, and I had my own carpet store and some strange twist of fate. I got addicted to methamphetamine. In a very short period of my life, I started using needles, thought that the only way I was ever going to quit. I mean, I just spiraled into a deep depression and was convinced the only way I was ever going to get sober was an overdose. And I tried my best to have that. I ended up teaching myself how to cook meth as an act of survival and ended up becoming one of the biggest meth cooks in Kansas City in the early 90s. Instead of having an overdose, I got arrested, was facing 30 years of my life, ended up in a cell by myself for 23 hours a day for almost a year. I'm going to abbreviate this story tremendously, but ended up getting a nine-year sentence from that. And then when I went off to do my nine years, when I was about to get paroled out, ended up getting indicted by the feds and I was facing life. So a lot of this is in the book. I don't want to ruin any of the story, but then ended up doing seven years. By the grace of God, did a total of seven years behind bars, walked out at the age of 35, scared to death, no college degree no network. I'd never even sent an email. And I went from a $10 an hour employee at a call center. I was the guy that you know used to call up and get you to take a free flip phone for your two-year extension on your Verizon. But I went from that to a decade later becoming a, a vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. And that part of my story is a very complex and difficult side. But that's it in a, in a very small, concise nutshell. So really going through all of it, right? <laughs> right from the very beginning to finding a place for yourself that feels right at, at the end. And you were able to, to find your way. Well, I mean, I think just like everybody, the answer is yes, of course it is. And it's a, it's a glorious story, right? Living it was not as fun as telling it, I promise you. But the thing that's not so obvious is that 10 years that I spent climbing through the ladder of corporate America was 10 years of shame and guilt and fear that I wouldn't wish on anybody. So my story, with the exception of my beautiful wife and all of the great things that happened in those 10 years, but for me, my story really starts when I sat down to write the book, which was a couple of years ago, because that's when I let go of the baggage that's when I started the healing process. That's when I stopped white knuckling everything in life. Right. And it is never ending. That happens for quite a few people. I think you finally get your story out there and you're able to just kind of let it go. And, and here it is and find some peace within yourself. If you're lucky. If you're that's lucky. That's right. That's right. 
Right. Well, luck and, and, and some hard work and some willingness too. Well, let's go back a little bit to your story. So you started with methamphetamine. How old were you and, and how did you find that? And, and how did that start to just blow up? And so I didn't start with meth. I started with alcohol and, and smoking weed in high school. Boy, weed is such a colloquial term, but right. <laughs> I mean, shows I, our I age. Cannabis, smoking marijuana cigarettes. Anyway, I, I I did the typical stuff in high school for the honor guys. I was a three sport athlete, so it was kind of an odd mixture of the things that I did for extracurricular activity. But and of course, I I tried LSD and I tried ecstasy and you know some of the fun stuff, but never until. I fell into the right or wrong crowd, depending on which side of the addiction you're on, until I fell into that crowd and had a bottomless bag of methamphetamine. I never really understood addiction and weakness. And and that was the beginning of the end. Right. So that that started that and you, you found it and you started moving forward. I started moving forward at a rapid pace. When I say a short amount of time, I literally went from a low level user that find a way to party every other weekend or something to literally from that point to two years later, facing a 30 year with no parole sentence. Wow. So I was on the fast track for sure. And it was all a blur. Wow. So for you, really that methamphetamine kind of hit the right nerves in you or the right brain cells or whatever. And it just took off and you were out of control. You couldn't stop. And it sounds like you were also able to manufacture it yourself, which I'd imagine continued the spiral. Absolutely. I mean, it's an addiction in itself. Right. I want to circle back to the book here on this part because the addiction of methamphetamine and then the addiction, so there, there's essentially three addictions that are involved, involved in this book. The addiction of meth itself, which was something that I couldn't understand, then the addiction of needles, which is in the same vein, no pun intended. And then, of course, the addiction of cooking methamphetamine, which became this quasi-romantic spiritual thing for me, which is something that we draw out in the book very well. But it's just as insane as anything else. Right. I would imagine if this drug is so important to you, that you could ritualize the the cooking of it and the making of it and almost in a way having a spiritual journey with it, though it's kind of robbing you of your spirit, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we say it tongue in cheek, but I mean, it, it really, it grabs a hold of a deeper part of your psyche and tricks you into believing that this has some sort of beauty. Right. Right? There's there's uh, There's commitment and faith and all these things that you've misguided and, and funneled into something wrong, but it exists nonetheless. Right. And it's a part of that insanity of being addicted. Yeah. I think that's, you know, well said. A lot of people talk about how you fall in love with your addiction in a way, even though you know it's destroying you, you love it in the same, at the same moment, at the same time. It's, uh, you have this, yeah, this relationship with it that just slowly destroys you. In my case, quickly destroys you. <laughs> or quickly, yeah. And for some people, yeah, quickly. Tell me a little bit, like, because you said earlier, you know, it's like you were praying for an overdose. So it sounds like there was part of you that knew this was destroying your life and that you couldn't stop. So was it going to prison and getting arrested that finally 
made that happen or not maybe by choice or by choice or how did that take place for you? Yeah, no, I mean, those are great questions and there's more than one in there. The, the first thing I want to say is yes, prison and being incarcerated was absolutely the cornerstone of my, my sobriety. Without that, I'd hate to think of what would have happened. The other thing I want to tell you is that I not only prayed, and, and look, when, when we're addicts and we're junkies, oh my gosh, that's so hard for me to say, but when you're a junkie, praying is not necessarily what I would call it. But my will, my wish, my everything was to literally die. And I would do shots that would have me lose my breath and turn completely beet red and fight for air. And the whole time I'd be telling myself, this is it. This was too big. And then the next sentence out of my head would be, I don't care. Please let me go on. Right. So yeah, all of that happened. And, and thank God, thank God. I'm, I'm getting a little choked up right now, but thank God I got arrested and right. was literally scared to death that I was going to do the rest of my life in prison and be insignificant and never get to contribute because it caused me to dive deeply into what the hell am I doing? So yes. And, and then the third thing I wanted to tell you was I knew I was addicted early on. It was never a secret to me. I never minced words. I knew what was going on. The thing that I had to come to grips with was that this addiction was never going to let go. That that was the part that it snuck up on me. Right. I thought I was in and out, right? Oh, I'll just you know, party a little bit. That, that's not the way it worked for me. Right. So you started to realize that you you couldn't just entertain it a little bit like that. It, it, it had you. It had me. And you never really know how much it has you until you try to stop. Right. And that didn't happen after weekend one, but four or five months into it, I wanted to stop. I actually went to a rehab and it only lasted three days. So there's a lot of things about my sobriety story that is very typical of many addicts. We try, it doesn't work. We break everybody's heart. We feel guilty, so we need more drugs. And that cycle happened more than once for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's, and it's so painful and and then more and more shame and, and more and more guilt and you have more reason to use drugs to get away from those feelings. And it's this crazy love hate relationship with this substance or, or behavior, whatever it is for the person that they just have to keep going, going through until they maybe find that moment where something comes in and changes it. And it sounds like getting arrested that was that moment for you that kind of forced you to have to do something different. It was. And just, you know, we can go into this a little deeper if, if you'd like, but it didn't happen with the first arrest. Right. <laughs> right. Well, usually a couple I, times, right? That's right. That's right. We'll make it really simple. But I, I will tell you this. I spent months in a county jail getting my head screwed on right. And most people, I, I considered myself a smart enough guy. I thought I knew myself. And I, I told my mom and dad, hey, if, if there's some way we can scrape up some money for bail and I can get a change of venue and actually get bail, then I can get out and I can correct some of this. And I meant it, every word of it. And less than 
48 hours of getting out after getting my head screwed on straight. I'd already had another needle in my arm and, and a fresh new case. Yep. I mean, less than 48 hours. Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard to understand that when you're not there and you're not in it, because in those moments, when you're making those promises, you mean it, you truly mean it with all of your soul. And then all of a sudden that changes again and that drug or addiction gets back, gets its grip back in you again. And all of a sudden you switched. And I will say that that part of, of the journey was the universe's way of making sure that when I finally got out, that I wasn't going to go back to it because I replayed for the seven years that I did behind bars. I replayed that, oh my God, I thought I had it all together and look what happened the first time that I made bail. So I can't play that game anymore. And it was, there was conviction in the powerlessness that we truly have over our addiction. And I'm thankful for that. I, I certainly wasn't when it happened, but it's, it's another, another building block to my foundation of sobriety. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that when you started to really understand that powerlessness and that feeling of powerlessness, it sounds like there was something in you that switched. Yeah. So again, I understood the powerlessness. I'm, I'm pretty introverted anyway, introspective, not introverted. Sorry. <laughs> right. I understood there was a degree of powerlessness, but when I finally was confined to being by myself for 23 hours a day in a jail cell, I was able to really come to grips and really see the movie that I had just created in my mind, right? And I could, I could replay it, rewind it, look at things and say, oh my God, the powerlessness is one thing, but it's the, the tricks. Our minds are so brilliant at, at fooling us into you know, that powerlessness being for someone else or or another situation or whatever it is and coming to grips with that and the depth and the layers of powerlessness was incredibly enlightening and a big part of my spirituality. Wow. And talk more about this time. Like in a way you were forced to be alone. You were forced to be with yourself. You couldn't go anywhere. You had to be there with yourself to look at this stuff. That's right. So I tell everybody this this moment in my life was both the, the scariest, most debilitating, life-sucking moment of my entire life. Because on one hand, I'm sobering up. I burned every bridge that ever existed. My mother wasn't even willing to come see me anymore. I am facing 30 years, which was real. And I'm in a cell with no belongings, right? Everything that I owned in the world was right there in that cell, a couple candy bars, some ramen noodle soups and whatever I was wearing. So that was horrible. And that was something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. But eventually it became one of the most beautiful experiences because yes, I was forced to be by myself for 23 hours a day, but I had no distractions. I had no, this may sound very materialistic, but I think it applies to literally everybody. I didn't have to think about status or a car or money or what job I was going to have. I didn't have those distractions. All I needed to think about 
was me and what I believed and how I was going to define purpose. And that's an experience that unless you're a monk that lives up in the Himalayas, you, you don't get a lot of chances to have. And what ended up happening, the result of all that was, was life-changing. I mean, and, and that's mildly putting it, but it changed everything. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering because you, you took that opportunity to do something with it, to do something with that time. And I'm wondering what it was in you that said, I have to look at this. I have to look at myself. Uh, what about you led you on that path? Does that make sense, that question I'm asking? Yeah, no, I think I, I may answer it differently than you asked. So just guide me a little bit. But first of all, God, life after death, spirituality, the soul, all of those things have been something that's very important to me my entire life. I, I remember being a five-year-old boy coming down and crying to my mother that someday I would die and reflecting deeply on what that means. So these are things that have always been important to me. What got screwed up along the way was me, right? But right. also these ideas of heaven and hell and fire and brimstone, you know, trying to fit benevolence into all these other definitions of things. So when I finally get into a situation where, hey, what else are you going to do? And this is one of the most perplexing, important questions of your entire life. And oh, by the way, if purpose, God, and spirituality mean something to you, and you have screwed up this bad, well, why don't we just find out why? Mm -hmm. and, and all it was true. That's all I wanted. And so I took the chance to do it. Right. I, I think this is a thing. I don't think, I know this is a thing that's been knocking at my door my entire life. But I, I think that this is a thing that knocks at everybody's door. And when the noise gets removed, you answer the call. Right. And that's what I did. So the willingness to really look at your situation, honestly, let go of any of the things you want to put a, put around it to protect yourself, just the pursuit of reality at all costs. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the big, what the heck have I done? And what's the meaning of all this? When you are faced with life in prison, that's that's a huge question. What is my life going to be and why? And it's driven with a sledgehammer right in the middle of your chest and you're not getting away from it. You you don't have cigarettes, you don't have alcohol, you don't have anything to run from that. So face it head on. That's what I did. Wow. That's that's amazing. And what courage, too, in those moments to do that. Because sometimes people still run, no matter what the situation is. And there's something that I think sometimes people make that decision to look at truth, their own truth, to look at it honestly, and to, to move into that. And that can be so uncomfortable, frightening, painful. What are you going to find when you do it? You know, sometimes we don't want to look at ourselves because we're terrified of what we're going to see. Yeah. And I, I want to be clear. I'm, I hope I'm not coming across as some guru that had a spiritual awakening and never did anything wrong again, because that's the furthest thing from the truth. Right. But I realigned my definitions and I found out, didn't find out, 
I redefined what was the most important things in life. And that's what happened in that cell. And then, of course, from that point till now, lots of distractions have happened. Yeah. And I I think that's an important point to make. Like a lot of times we have these moments where we make these significant changes, but that doesn't, that's not where it stops. Really, that's just where the work begins. And then we have to continue to work on it and kind of fall down again and get back up and make a mess. But that shift in thinking, that willingness to be honest with yourself and to be open to what's going on in your life and in your world, that shift, I think, sometimes can fundamentally change us in a way that helps us uh, move in a more positive direction for ourselves. For sure. There's no doubt about it. And it, no matter how far I remove or distracted I get from the course, it has absolutely made me the husband and the father that I am today. Right. Those those definite things. Because, you know, spoiler alert, here's what it all boiled down to for me was love and oneness. And unconditional love and oneness, you can spend the rest of your life, you can spend multiple lifetimes trying to figure out what that really means. And that's that's my gig. That's my deal. And love, I didn't understand it the way that I do now. And love wasn't as important as it is now. And it's a super flowery word and a lot of people throw it around, but that's the change I made. And that's what I never stray from. Even when I get distracted, I go right back to it. And it's a beautiful thing. This is where I need to put my focus and my energy. And it brings about so much more for me and for others. I mean, that's that's what I hear you saying. That's true. That that's exactly right. And you talked about falling back down once you once you see what it's all about. And yes, the book <laughs> is chock full of you can call them tests or trials and tribulations or whatever you want to call it. It's um it was a crazy ride for sure. Definitely. And well, I also want to know about like this transition out of prison, because that sounds like that was extremely difficult too. Can you share a little bit about that as well? Yeah, well, I'd be glad to. It's um, very difficult is one way to put it. So, so simply put, I, in the very beginning, and this is anybody that knows me is going to scratch their head and say, I, I can't believe what you're saying. But in the beginning, I was institutionalized and I was scared to death. And I'm not talking about scared to death of necessarily what I'm going to be or any of that stuff. I was scared to death in social environments and that people could see that there was something wrong with me and that I was never going to be normal. And I had PTSD and all these things. And all I could think about was how much more comfortable would it be if I was still in prison? And, And those were the thoughts I had to wrestle with in the beginning as I was trying to climb back up and and make a name for myself. The good thing for me is two things. One, I have a bulletproof belief that I can literally do anything I set my mind to. And I'm very lucky that I have that. And it's probably a testimony of my mother or my upbringing or whatever. But the other thing is, is that I met my wife five months after I walked out. And she is absolutely the cornerstone to all my strength. She keeps me from making bad decisions. And those two combinations made it, I'm not going to say easy, but made it possible for me to keep my head on a swivel and literally find the windows of opportunity. What, what most people, especially people getting out of prison and have dug that 
that big of a hole. What, what they overlook is, hey, these opportunities are work. Like these opportunities are setting your pride aside and doing the kind of work that somebody 15 years younger than you probably isn't going to do. And I was willing to do all of that stuff. And that and a lot of micro decisions led to Silicon Valley and startup companies. And then it was just game on once I got there. Right, right. So this kind of unshakable belief that you could do it if you put your your mind to it and then having a supportive person who could care about you and center you a little bit, help you with that, that direction, keeping you straight, really helped move you forward. But it, it does sound like it would be scary getting out of prison after 10 years and trying to figure it all out with nothing. It's very scary. And here's the thing that breaks my heart. When I think about the men and women that walk out and don't have that kind of support, I, I, I understand this on a level that, that most people I don't think even think about. But when I think about what I had versus what other people have, it's no wonder people constantly go back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I think, you know, having more, that's like part of doing this podcast is, is putting information out there for people who need support and can get it because life is so hard already. And if you can get support from people, you know, it just makes it a little bit easier. It boils back down to love. Yeah. You need to have it. Everybody needs to have it. And my entire life can be summed up with, I want everybody to know that we're all in this together and that people don't have to be alone. Because in the beginning of being in that cell, like we talked about, I'd never, ever, ever felt more alone. Right. Now, news is it drove me to do some great things internally. Bad news is it sucked. <laughs> right. Well, I, I would imagine n knowing that deep sense of, of loneliness. I mean, Already, I think for a lot of people who struggle with addiction, loneliness is already part of the equation, but you don't have social isolation on top of that. And then to be in prison, just to amplify that, I, I'm just imagining how, yeah, how difficult that would be. It's difficult. And it's one of many things that were difficult. So it is. And, and I, until a couple of years ago, when I got out of survival mode and decided to release this story and this shame and all those, all those other things until I did that, I wasn't prepared to concentrate on other people and help them. I mean, I helped people. I, I helped people learn how to sell and I helped them in their careers and I did everything I could, but not to the degree that I'm doing now. This deeper level of help. And it's broader. Right, right. So tell me a little bit about what made you decide like, okay, I've got to write this down. I've got to put this out there. I've got to let people really know my story. It boils down to I was in a partnership, a business partnership, and it wasn't working out. My wife and I were, we had diminished the quality of our lives. We didn't like what was going on. And I realized that not only now, but for a very long time, I had been making decisions based solely on fear and insecurity. And it, it all went back to, maybe it goes back even further than this, but the prison and the drugs and the shame. And, and this is 40, almost 48 years old, right? I'm not a young man at this point. And I just said, enough. 
I'm strong. I'm tough. I've been through a lot of things. I can beat this. I can take my life back. And so that was the driving, the driving force to start writing the book. I'm going to free myself from this shame. I'm going to put it out there for myself, for others, and in a way, an act of self-love, right? I'm going to love myself enough to put this all out there and, and give it back to the world. It was definitely self-preservation more than love. It was, okay. it was definitely that. And it was difficult. But for me, it was, I'm proud enough. My ego's big enough to believe that I'm stronger than this thing. And how embarrassing is it to continue to let it rule my life? Oh, here's something that I didn't add. Nobody knew. Nobody knew my story. The people that I grew up with, some of them knew, but nobody that I worked around, nobody that worked for me, none of my employers, none of the CEOs, none of them knew. I was hiding. None of the people that, that my wife and I had built a community with, that we were right. our babies together with, you know, none of that. Nobody knew. And that sort of double life takes a toll on you. I had stage four cancer that I battled. And I think a lot of it has to do with the guilt, shame, stress, worry, probably the drugs, but a combination of all the above. And I think that's a common feeling. What you're describing is holding this kind of secret story of, of your past with, you know, and holding all that shame and, you know, it kind of sits with you and you, and in a way you have to, like you said, you kind of have this secret life. If anybody really knew me, if anybody really saw the real me, maybe they won't love me. Maybe I'm not lovable. Maybe they won't want to be around me. So you hold that story. And then, like you said, you get enough strength and you take the risk to put it out there. And there's freedom in that, finally. It's amazing. But you're right. I mean, not only would they not like me, and this is my mindset back then, but I wouldn't be employable. Right. My entire house of cards is going to crumble. And everything that I worked for, because I worked hard, as you can imagine, to get to the point to where I got, is it, it's all over in the flash of a, of a pan, an eye. What am I trying to say? Anyway. Right. Yeah. No, it's all over in a second. And, and I can't. So you got to live with that anxiety and stress. And I think that's where for people who are struggling out there, you know, being able to share their story in support groups, 12-step groups, with therapists, with other people that understand, listening to this podcast, you know, all of those things helps take that away. I mean, we all can connect in our common humanity of, of our life and, and what that means. And in some ways, we all have different levels of this, that the more we share it and the more we put it out there, the more we realize we're, like you said earlier, we're all in this together. We are. We are. And the more we realize that, the better it feels. Yeah, definitely. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm definitely looking forward to to getting to it and hearing your story and, and reading it. So usually what I like to ask is as we get closer to the end here, if anybody out there is listening, what message would you want to give them if this story is resonating with them? What would you want to say to them? Real, simply put, Never give up. Never count yourself out. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how many times you failed. It doesn't matter if you tried this a minute ago and you weren't able to do it. You can get back up and you can 
live a life that's not only surviving, but thriving. And what I would like everybody to have is hope and belief because fulfillment is so critical to the reason we have life. That's as short as I can make it. I think that's, that's great, Kyle. Thank you so much for coming on. How can people find you if they want, if they want more information about you, how can they get in contact with you? Sure. I got a website. It's www.kyledeanhouston.com and Houston spelt just like the city. My email address is kyle at kyledeanhouston.com and then Facebook and Instagram. Uh, they're both at Kyle Dean Houston. So between those uh, and the newsletter and all sorts of things, they can get in touch with me and, and we can make beautiful things happen. Awesome. I will link all that stuff in the show notes as well. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, being part of the Addicted Mind podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Duane, I appreciate it as well. And thank you for, for all the work that you do and all the help you put out into the world. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 100. Once again, if you are liking or loving The Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. It gets us a lot of exposure and allows people to find this information and find this podcast. And also join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everybody, I hope you are having a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.